Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R, rather than the number four, and hope is, again, the address at gmail.com. If you'd like proper spelling of that outside of oral tradition, you can join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, or cut out the middleman at ccftucson.online.church. If you want to be directed to that through a link, it is in the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen of our website, the Watch Live signal in the purple bar, that will send you to that page, where we will not only be counting down to the next broadcast, but also at the right-hand side of the screen, allow you to engage with us face-to-face with the live streaming for, um software, I guess, would be the term I was looking for, for you to take advantage of, and we'll be keeping an eye on it during the broadcast. Our YouTube and Facebook pages are online as well. Uh, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. However, since we don't control when or why, we are taken down from those platforms. Feel free to make our website the main way in which you get a hold of us. If we are live streaming and we, of course, don't appear on these platforms without notifying you beforehand, feel free to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. That being said, the kind of questions we will be answering are sincere Bible questions. If they are sincere, then you'll want to hear the answer. If they are about the Bible, and ultimately the answer is involving the Bible, or, of course, it is in the form of a question, all those will be accepted. Otherwise, we'd recommend uh, either rephrasing or reformatting until it fits those standards. We're looking forward to engaging with you and hope that God is going to equip us to minister to you exactly where you're at, but of course, he has a tendency of doing that when we ask. So why don't we do that first, get into our next rhetoric lesson, and then hopefully put it into practice in listening to your questions. It's a bit of foreshadowing. Dad, thank you for the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, to be glorified through the not only lifting up of your word, but the honoring of your name through it. Allow us to not only be filled with your spirit, but your heart and your voice and those listening with your ears to be able to receive this information as we are so thankful you continue to speak to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, we began a series of lessons that will hopefully be instructing those who are following along with us in the fine art of rhetoric, a very underappreciated form of education. And this, of course, is in regards to conversation and critical thinking being one and the same. Right. Now, if you want to listen to our introduction, we have the clipped video available on our YouTube, Facebook, and our website pages, and you can engage with us through those, through the rhetoric classes in 101. But noting the lessons must begin somewhere, of course, when we're talking to people, there is two parties in any conversation at minimum. And of course, if you're going to effectively speak to someone, what, not only in the laws of rhetoric, but especially biblically, is required of those to have a meaningful conversation. Yeah, so the, the main and first lesson that we can probably teach you guys and one that we are always trying to learn is the capacity to listen. So in James 1, nice, uh, James 1 verse 18, it says, 
<clears throat> let everyone be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. So before I learn how to speak correctly, I have to listen. I have to learn how to listen correctly. I have to learn how to hear what my opponent or what the person I'm trying to dialogue with is trying to say. And so, obviously, this doesn't mean oh, well, if you have a hearing aid that uh, can just be adjusted. No, there are people who can hear just fine but don't listen, and right. that's the difference. Right, and it's cool. In the Greek, actually, there are multiple tenses that describe the act of listening. There are passive tenses and there are active tenses. So uh, the passive tense just means that you hear sounds, but an active tense means that you're defining meaning and content. So a good example of this is actually in Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, where he sees a light and he hears Jesus speak to him. Now, it says in his conversion account that the people accompanying him heard the voice as well, but to them it just sounded like noise, right? They actually didn't discern any intent or they didn't discern any information from what Jesus was communicating to Paul. Only Paul heard that. That would be the very clear distinction between active and passive listening. Both are privy to the noises, but one is actually able to make out what the noises mean and interpret it for their life. So in order to be good at rhetoric, and remember, rhetoric is the art form of public speaking. That's your ability to convince other people using a platform where you're dialoguing with them in a speech uh, platform. So uh, to distinguish from dialectic, in which I am trying to convince you using a conversational form. So that would be asking questions, hearing your response, and things like that. So in order to be a good rhetorician, in order to be someone who can speak well, I have to be able to listen to other people speak and do it with my brain turned on. Unfortunately, a lot of times when we listen to people speak, we turn our brains off and we just kind of listen to what they're saying, but it's not really impacting us very well and we're not able to discern what their points are and if we are able to discern what their points are, we're not able to tell why that's an effective point, why it's correct, why that argument works, why it doesn't work, things like that. And the reason for this, obviously, is as James noted, we're not slow to speak, we're quick to speak. We want to get in our words as opposed to allow them to bury themselves if they're wrong or present themselves if they're right. And of course, anger, the emotion of blocked goals, can also stir up this mental blockade that basically defines most of social media and one that we need to avoid if we're going to be effective at rhetoric as well. Absolutely. So uh, if we hear something that we don't like, we tend to turn off our minds and like you said Sean resort to anger and just think about our response as opposed to continue listening to what the person's saying we're not waiting our turn we're listening to the answer that's right oftentimes uh, I'll give sermons and people come up to me and be like I can't believe you said that I'm like well yeah but I followed it up with this well they didn't hear the this they only heard the beginning of it and their brains turned off and they they couldn't hear the end uh, I, I think it was Chuck Smith, he gave the illustration where a pastor stood up on Easter Sunday and said, you know, God is, God is dead, God doesn't exist, or something to that effect. They found evidence of Jesus' tomb, and the body was in it. It turns out that the whole resurrection was a fraud, and everything that we are gathering here for is based on a lie. It's been verified historically, you all can just go home next word, next breath. Wouldn't it be awful if that was true? Right. Then went on to give the message, and of course a lady came up to him. This was him, right. literally, afterwards, and said, I can't believe you would say those things. He's like, do you hear more than the first 12 seconds, woman? <laughs> That's my 
summary. But <laughs> Absolutely. And we have total tendency to do that. And uh, we do that with our opponents. We do that with people that we don't like. We, as I said, we hear their point. We, we're listening passively, but we're not listening actively. So we can't actually interact with what they're saying. And therefore, the conversation usually devolves to name calling and things like that, which we'll talk about more. Yeah, and again, <laughs> yeah. it's not always a bad thing to tune someone out if they've demonstrated themselves to be untrustworthy or taking a verifiably false position. You don't do them any favors by entertaining or wasting your time in engaging with an issue you already know is being false. Right. So, and again, you can talk about this in the terms of public debate or an outreach. If someone's coming to you and explaining the glories of Luciferianism, mm -hmm. you don't have to pay too much attention. You can just pick one topic and say, well, let's focus more on that because I'm pretty sure everything else involved human sacrifice. Yeah. Let's just get on to the more important issues. Absolutely. And in the coming weeks, me and Sean are going to be teaching various logical fallacies that you can start listening for. Mm -hmm. So you can understand what they are, why they are fallacies, and how to interact with them. How do you steer the conversation in a different direction. Jesus was a master at this, by the way. So whenever he spoke to people, you notice, especially his opponents, he never answers their question. Now, that seems infuriating. You're like, why don't you just answer the question? Because the question itself is a trap. Jesus sees the logical fallacy, and he's able to skirt around it. So absolutely, Jesus is God. He is wise. But it doesn't mean what he's doing is completely foreign. It's not miraculous. It is just a source of divine wisdom. Jesus is able to spot fallacies because he's God, <laughs> kind, of his, kind of his thing. He's able to spot fallacies very well, and he's able to respond to them in a way that doesn't snap the trap closed around his leg. And since our goal here is in the Bible, first and foremost, we'll be giving biblical examples mm -hmm. of when these fallacies are either presented or addressed. Absolutely. So uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about today, though, in regards to listening, normally this would be like lesson one. If you're learning rhetoric, this would be lesson one. But we kind of have to go back to like lesson negative one in our culture, because rhetoric is fundamentally presupposed on a foundation of objective truth. So in order for rhetoric to be utilized or a useful tool, dialectic and rhetoric, you have to believe that there are objective truths that underpin the world and that your brain is actually designed to be able to perceive those objective truths. So for instance, if I right now held up my Bible, so those of you guys who are listening, you're going to have to use your imaginations. <laughs> but those of you guys who are watching, you can see this. I'm holding up my Bible, and if I say, do you see a Bible, I'm presupposing that you have A, eyeballs that are able to perceive the Bible, and B, a brain that is able to adequately translate the information from your eyes to something that resembles a Bible. I believe in objective truths if I ask a question like that. Rhetoric presupposes that there are objective truths and that those objective truths can be discovered by the human brain. So if either one of those are out of sync in my way of thinking, I will not resort to rhetoric. So if I don't think that there are objective truths, why would I have a conversation with you about truth when you and I might have different perceptions of truth? You have your truth, I have my truth, and we resort to uh, revert back to Pontius Pilate when he asked Jesus, quid es veritas, what is truth? One of the most famous questions in all of scripture. When Pilate is saying that, he's not asking Jesus. He's not like, well, what is truth? I, I, I really don't know. No, he just told him. That's right. Jesus just told him. He's dismissing Jesus's claims by saying there is, in other words, it's there is no truth. 
there is no truth. There's your truth. There's my truth. There's all those people's truths out there. They think you're a liar. You think you're a king. I think you're a madman. Who cares? It's all just perspective. That was his view of truth. You can't. Yeah, which is why the predominant philosophy of this age has removed the need for rhetoric, because it's also dismissed the idea of truth. Philosophies Mm -hmm. like Feuerbach and Nietzsche have dismissed this idea of an absolute foundation for reality, and now we're seeing the consequences. Welcome to the internet. That's right. So if you ever wondered, you know, why is debate so foreign nowadays? Why doesn't it happen more often? And when you go online, why is it that... Uh, these online, there's multiple reasons, but what is one of the reasons why these online civil discourses become so inflammatory, so inflammatory so quickly is because people today have more or less dismissed the idea of objective truth. And therefore, what's the point of debate? Even in fact, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now, when we got into these rhetoric classes, you might've been like, what's the point, Peter? I mean, you guys got your point of view. Other people got their point of view. We all just kind of argue about it. And are we any closer to knowing the truth? You know, I mean, what's the point of listening to debate? You're buying into that line of reasoning that's pervasive in our culture, that there really is no objective truth. There's a great proverb. It says, a man seems right until his, until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. So when you hear people debate and you hear people speak, you get to hear the other side and that contrast brings about clarity. It helps you understand the issue a little bit better. And because you have a reasoning mind created by God, who is a reasoning God, the laws of logic are not subjective, they're objective. They exist whether we recognize them or not. The human brain is not here to create truth, the human brain is there to recognize truth and God has designed us to be able to do that. Think again about how God has delineated truth. He's delineated truth through the Bible, and the Bible is not just a set or series of doctrinal statements. I don't know how many of you guys have actually read the doctrinal statements of the church, like the creeds and things like that. They're very succinct, they're very easy to follow, and they're just very concrete. And some people, like Muslims, for instance, are a good example. They're like, well, if the Nicene Creed is so clear in Scripture, why isn't there a clear Scripture that says it? Well, the elements that make up our doctrine of the Trinity are present in the Bible, but you got to use your noggin to be able to put the pieces together. And once you use your intellect and reason to a certain extent, it's an inescapable conclusion. You can't say, well, there are some people who read the Bible and they don't see the Trinity in there. That's great. That doesn't mean the Trinity is not in there. It just means that they're not seeing it. Just like if I'm talking to my dad, who's unfortunately colorblind, just because he can't see the color blue doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? It just means that he can't perceive it with his eyes because there's something wrong with it. There are objective truths, and the human brain has been designed to discover those truths by God. So in order to give a cool example of this, I'll play this. And hopefully it picks up on the microphone. Let us we'll know if you can't. It. We'll repeat it. Me and Sean will interact with this a little bit. This comes from a documentary called What is a Woman? And if you haven't watched it, regardless of where you stand on gender ideology and things like that, I would encourage you to watch it because the beginning of the documentary is all rhetoric. So the person is uh, presenting himself as someone seeking answers. And so he spends the first 45 minutes just asking questions. It's not gotcha journalism. He lets them bury themselves. That's right. He lets them speak. And so if you want an example of how to listen, how to ask appropriate questions, I think this is actually a very good way to get there. But this is a conversation that he has with a liberal professor and listen to his response. I think it's very telling of where our culture is at. Says that they're a woman or they're a man, then that 
that's them telling you their gender is. I, I'm not so sure why, what social um, in, interactions would have to do with with maleness or femaleness that would. Well, be I'm not even talking about social context. I'm just I'm just trying to start by getting to the truth. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm really uncomfortable with that language of like getting to the truth again in social why, why life. Is that, why is that uncomfortable? Because that it sounds actually deeply transphobic to me. Um, and truth. And, and if you keep probing, we're going to stop the interview. I, if I probe about what the truth is, you keep invoking the word truth, which is condescending and rude. I'm saying how to is, you, how is the word truth condescending and rude? Why don't you tell me what your truth is, and you're walking on. 30 seconds more of the nights before I get up. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. So that uh, I hope you guys were able to listen to that. But that is a very interesting dialogue. I think it's very telling of the age that we live in. But essentially, if you guys couldn't hear it, he is interviewing this professor. And the professor is giving this long-winded answer about how he sees reality and how we should perceive pronouns of an individual. And the question is, well, I'm not really interested in social interactions. I'm interested in truth. And how does the professor respond to that? And how is that telling for our day? Well, instead of addressing his perspective or clarifying it in light of the question, they got defensive and they, of course, put themselves in the victim status, which is basically how all conversation online goes, in order to achieve a moral high ground and gain emotional empathy rather than to have some sort of accountability for which, their ideas. What part of rhetoric is that? The ethos, right? Yep. So presenting the ethos, the ethics of the speaker to basically say, I am an ethical person, so therefore you should believe what I'm saying. And ethical standing is achieved in our culture through victim status. As opposed to, and unfortunately at the expense of Laogos, which is what Walsh was trying to invoke. That's right. Because how can you have an argument that has Logos when you've ejected the concept of truth? And notice that at the end of the conversation, when he gets very upset with him for invoking this word truth, he calls it bigoted, he calls it transphobic to even say that word. As and if then that he, word means something. Right. And then he, which again, how do you define these words, right? So uh, at the end, he says, well, why don't you tell me what your truth is? And that's how that answered. So you see it implicit in his comment that he does not believe that there are objective truths. So if I'm talking to someone who's communicating that way, I am not going to get anywhere with this person until we can come to a, a mutual understanding of objective truths. Which we'll talk about more when we get to self-defeating ideas. That's right. So when you think about language, uh, some people who believe in subjective truth today, they will say, well, you know, language is malleable. It evolves over time, so therefore it doesn't really matter. And there's a, there's a hint of truth in there, but it's, it's covering a pretty big deception. Yeah. So what they're hinting at is because phrases change, the meaning of words change over time, therefore language is malleable and it doesn't represent any type of objective reality. Now that's untrue. What language does is obviously, again, using the example of the Bible, there are many different words that I could use to describe this. I could call it a book. I call it a Bible. I can invoke different languages and their word for Bible, their word for book. And all of these words would be true, even though they're all different. The point is, is even though language is malleable, the language itself is present to be able to describe something that's objective. In other words, how do you and I share an experience collectively or together when it's both being perceived in different ways and at different points of view? Well, we use language. We try to bridge the gap of perception by communicating to each other 
in words that we both understand and we both have clear definitions for. So the problem is, is that in our culture, because truth is subjective, the main guy who really messed this up was a guy named Michel Foucault, uh, lived about 56 years ago. He's kind of on the heels of these subjective thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and people like that. But Michel Foucault had this really interesting idea that since all truth is subjective, language is subjective, and language is actually an instrument of power wielded by those at the top to subject those underneath them. So he thought that language is just a power game and that those in power should actually, by having dominance, they need to actually steal language and make and change definitions. So when you see people where definitions are being changed on a daily basis and you're like, whoa, wait, where, where did this term come from? Where, where does this non-binary come from? Where does this Latinx come from? Where's, and if you find yourself constantly scratching your head and like, why don't I understand the words that you're saying? That is the point. The changing of the language is to create confusion and destabilize the capacity for intellectual dialogue. If I don't know what the words you're saying mean, I cannot reasonably interact with what you're saying. So. Uh, if you're, again, dealing with someone who is subjective in their ideology, you need to be able to address that subjectivity and you need to get that person to define their terms. So the reason why the movie is called What is a Woman is because he's just trying to ask very basic questions of, we have this word, we're both using it, but I get the idea that you and I mean something very different when we're utilizing this word. So let's get down to brass tacks. This is also a very useful tool when we're talking about evangelism. And evangelism, especially with Mormons, this is like one of the main groups of people that I was speaking with that I realized the necessity of this lesson, where we were using the same language, but I realized very quickly, we don't mean the same thing. Right, so they would say, oh yeah, we totally believe that we're saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah except for we're using terms, right? But they mean something, they don't mean what we mean when they say saved, they don't mean what we mean when we say grace, and they don't mean what we mean when we say Jesus Christ. They mean something totally different on all three of those key terms that make up that sentence. So in order for me to communicate with this person, I have to figure out what do you mean by saved? What do you mean by grace? What do you mean by Jesus? And then we could get down to what our disagreement actually is. Uh, when it comes to even marriage sometimes, the way that men and women communicate oftentimes is very different. We have different ways of communicating emotion. We have different ways of communicating how we feel. Sometimes it's even just nonverbal, and we expect our partner to pick up on cues. One exercise that I give for couples that are having difficulty communicating is I tell them, first of all, try this. It's I don't have a fancy name for it, but it's basically a cross-examination tool. So instead of you guys just arguing, give five minutes, and during that five minutes, only one person can talk, and all the other person can do is ask questions, right? So you can't, and not leading questions, not like, well, that's, why do you think that I don't understand what you're saying? You know, like it's just... Yeah, like a Jeopardy manipulation. Right. <laughs> what is, <Yeah>. you're an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> it's, it's actual clarifying questions. What do you mean by that? I'm trying to understand. At the end of that five minutes, what I tell the couple to do is I say, okay, the person on the receiving end of the cross-examination, meaning the person asking the questions, not making the statements, you have to repeat back what you heard your partner say to their liking. So in other words, once they're done speaking, I have to then communicate to them, this is what I think you're saying. And if you're wrong, your partner can correct you, and they keep correcting you until you get it right. Oftentimes, what you see happen in communication breakdowns in relationship 
is we're speaking the same language, but we're really not. We're using the same words, but we mean very different things. So this is a big, big key of re uh, rhetoric. You're going to have to do it in dialectic, meaning when you communicate with people in a verbal way, in a dialogue way, but also be open to it when you hear rhetoric itself, when you hear politicians speak, when you hear your pastor speak. What does he mean by these words? Part of my journey in Christianity is recognizing that uh, when I was around 22, I was like, oh man, I don't understand what a lot of these words mean. I don't know what salvation means. I couldn't define it in a really clear and concise way. I don't, I don't know what the word grace means. And that's, that's my fault, because I was just kind of slipstreaming on other people when they were doing the God talk and just pretending like I didn't know what they meant. But I realized I need to do some homework and really figure these things out if I'm going to adequately understand what my pastor is teaching me and allow those words to move me in a way that God wants. So remember, it's not that the pathos, the emotional part of the argument, or the ethos, the ethical part of the argument are bad, but they're like the bread and the condiments on a sandwich. They're good, but without the meat, it's just bread and lettuce. <laughs> you gotta have something full there. The logos, the logical argument, that's the meat. But if you just got the meat, that's boring. You know, so the, the pathos and the ethos, they're good. They elevate the argument. They enable the argument to touch you at a deeper place, to move you experientially. So they're good. We shouldn't dispose of them, but we should also train ourselves to listen for the logical argument and interact with it. And understand that's what's key. If you're listening to someone and they don't actually tell you what they mean, they're either trying to manipulate you or they're not being clear. This is why you ask for clarification. And again, being slow to anger does not mean that anger is not eventually warranted. Right. If someone's deliberately lying to you, that is indeed something to respond to as an injustice. But if on the other hand, we're not quick to speak, but or quick to listen, but quick to speak, we're violating what James laid out for us in the foundations of rhetoric, which again, to recap what's been discussed, the foundation of a good listener is knowing what to listen for. Mm. The listening for needs to be first understood as the foundation of truth, that there is such a thing that applies to both of us at the same time. Right. And in the same way. And without that authority, there's nothing to listen to because nothing ultimately is being said. But once that agreement is then formed, we look for logos, the logic, the definition. We understand the logos in light of the ethos and the pathos, and then we come to conclusions, but not before. Mm -hmm. If someone can tell you fun stories, they haven't actually told you anything. If someone describes something a certain way, they still have to tell you what that thing is they're describing. Right. And of course, if someone just gives you a list of facts, well, then you'd probably respond to them the way you do with us and think they're boring. But we're doing our best here. So listening, understand truth, understand logic, understand illustrations and the differences between, and that, of course, is founded in truth. If we can have those conversations, then we're talking. But if not, well, then you can spend your time elsewhere. But with the remainder of time that we have, let's go out to your questions now, and we're looking forward to engaging with you. Well, of course, listening first, Isaiah wants to know, what does Ecclesiastes 9.4 mean that a dead lion is uh, worse or better than a living dog? Uh, let me note the passage and, of course, That's the context <laughs> of the illustration. Ecclesiastes, for those of you who don't know, was written by King Solomon at the end of his life, a very uh, cynical and jaded man who's pretty much reached the end of everything this world world has to offer more money, more status, more wealth, women, and 
other things that he could basically get a hold of, and it ultimately was meaningless to him. The key word for the entire book is vanity of vanities, or vapor, meaningless. It's grasping at the wind, which, of course, as you know, falls through your fingers just as easily as you grip. So when he makes this point in illustration in verse 4, let's start in verse 3. He says, this is an evil that in all that is done under the sun, that is, in this physical life, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And note this, madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, obviously, being Jewish, he is working through contrasts, and in this poetic observation, he's describing that people are evil, they make life hard for themselves and everyone around them, and then they die. But there's hope for the person who's still alive. And then he makes a contrast. How were dogs seen in a Middle Eastern context to which Solomon is speaking? Not well. Yeah, yeah not well. They were hated. And in fact, I, I the opportunity to go to Afghanistan, they're still hated. <laughs> they're still <laughs> very much reason. hated, yeah. Uh, so we think about, you know, puppies, you know, you get golden retriever, man's, man's best, best friend, friend yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, this would be, in Tucson, the equivalent of, like, coyotes, things like that, you know, undomesticated packs of dogs that were sometimes carrying diseases like rabies. They would bite children. They would feed off of trash in the streets and the alleys. And if they were an agrarian society, they go after your flocks. They were yeah. the things you looked out for. Right. So we're, we're talking more like coyotes, wolves, like pests, those kind of things. But then you compare that to a lion. Obviously, they were not liked either, but for different reasons. They were feared, they were respected, they were the king of beasts, whereas the dogs, if you want to make the illustration to the Disney film The Lion King, it's comparing Mufasa to the hyenas. Right. You got the hazardous villains, the mischievous troublemakers who ruin everything they touch, and you got the noble, majestic animal. Yeah. But no matter how majestic you are, if you're dead, that majesty amounts to nothing. Yeah. If you are a dog, but you're still alive, you have the one thing the lion doesn't, which is life. <laughs> and in life, there is hope. And that's an important observation that people are making sometimes if they're struggling with suicide or if they're looking for hope for the future and just don't find any. Solomon's basic point is that, that if you have life, it doesn't matter how miserable a state you're in, you're better off than the majestic dead guy. Yeah. <laughs> life is better is the point. If we're yeah. going to somewhere up in three words, <laughs> let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah. Anything more to note? No, it's good. All right. Uh, here's a question following up from that about Nina, who's concerned about the loss of truth, uh, basically how, you know, you're talking in a binary, those things are antiquated, culture saying that truth is offensive, like the professor, right. and wants to know, will there be a revival or will it get worse? Well, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but Scripture tells us it's going to get worse, but right. why shouldn't that discourage us? Uh, right. So the first thing to point out about your question, it's very, it's very apt, it's very timely, uh, because as I said, if you do not believe that logic is real, if you don't believe that truth is real, then all there is is my truth versus your truth, and who's going to win? The guy with the bigger gun. So in other words, or whoever's... Yeah, we're with the gun. <laughs> so whoever's in power gets to impose their view of truth top-down on the world. Now, from a Marxist ideology, that's a good thing. Marx actually believed that humanity was evolving at a rapid rate, and so therefore the people who achieved power 
would be able to institute a utopia. So he saw it as a good thing. That's why when you see these politicians saying like, oh, like, look at how bad it is that Twitter allows all these evil people to be on it. Give us the, we need to shut that down. We need to destroy all these people. What they're saying is these ideas are dangerous. Give us the power to shut them down. We don't want to interact with them. We don't want to say why they're wrong. We just want to shut them down. And so we're going to make them illegal. We're going to make speech illegal. So uh, this came about in the phrase, silence is violence, uh, meaning that if I do not speak out on behalf, I'm sorry, speech is violence was the beginning. Speech is violence, meaning if I say something that offends you, I've committed an act of violence and therefore I need to be prosecuted for violence. That's what we called it, hate speech. Then that turned into silence is violence if you do not uh, actively affirm me. If you do not actively affirm my pronouns or whatever, my self-perception, you're committing an act of violence against me. So if you don't say the things that I say, you are worthy of a criminal offense. You're committing violence because you're standing in support of those who I am speaking against. Now, if you don't say the exact things that I'm saying, not just that you are saying them, that you don't say them the way I'm saying them, you're also guilty of criminal violence because you are standing in favor of those I'm opposing. And Mm. that is, of course, absolutely right. But then morality's subjective and then you have to sort that whole thing out and that's when they block you. But the point you made is this. (laughs) Absolutely. So as long as our culture disregards objective truth, this trend will continue because then it is just my truth versus your truth and whoever has the greatest power or wields the greatest authority is going to win. And one side of the argument is going to say, well, I believe in objective truth, so therefore I don't think the government should shut down free speech. I think we should be able to dialogue because dialogue can lead to truth. Will it always? No, of course there are scoffers and fools out there who won't listen to truth even when they understand it. But as a general rule, People want truth, and therefore, as we logically dialogue about these things, people can be led to truth, and that's a good. So we should allow the government to shut down sides of view, points of view that I don't like. But as long as people don't believe in that, you will see increased shutdowns of ideas. And by the way, it I don't really care what side is silencing the other side. It's wrong because it is insinuating there is no underpinning objective truth. So as you said, Sean, the Bible does, does give us a little bit of a bleak outlook uh, that things will get kind of wor- uh, worse. The best thing you can do is just to try your best to understand what people are saying and try to lead them into an understanding of objective truth. You can't do it on a macro level unless you have a very large platform. But wherever you are in your community, try to help people understand the need of objective truth and try to help them understand they actually do think there's an objective truth. It's a little tricky to help them understand that, but they do. That's why they're getting so mad. But at any rate, we'll we'll talk more about that when we get into it. But yeah, I, I definitely see it going more south. All you can really do as a Christian is if there is something that you disagree with, we are commanded by God, right? This is how the apostles worded it in Acts, where they were told not to preach in Jesus' name. Their response was, whether it is right to do, I mean, I'm sorry, whether it is correct to do what is right in your eyes or the eyes of God, will you be the judge? As for us, we cannot stop speaking the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. As Christians, we are not really allowed to compromise objective truth. When we see truth, we understand that it reflects God's nature, and because it reflects God's nature, it reflects God's good moral character. And therefore, to refrain from speaking truth 
is to cause harm to those around us. There's another interesting proverb where it says, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but the, the arrows of a friend are faithful. Now, what that proverb is saying is it's saying, if I'm really your friend and you're doing something that is damaging to you biologically and morally, and I keep my mouth shut about it, I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble, so you just you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. Uh, if that's going to be the case, then I'm doing you harm because I'm allowing you to go down a road that's going to damage you. So if I'm really your friend, I will bring it up. Now, it doesn't mean that you go out there looking for a fight. It's not like you're looking for anyone that you believe is in this kind of gender ideology craze and just maybe, I mean, if you if you are someone that is an evangelist and you have that mindset and you can competently go up and talk to people about this in a loving way and deal with a little heat because that's what you're going to get if you talk to someone like this and not respond in kind, go for it. But if you're someone that's intimidated by this, you don't have to go out there looking for trouble. But if you're put in a, in a situation where someone's like, what do you think I am? You can't lie, right? Try your best to say it in the most loving and gracious way you can, but you cannot compromise the truth. And you got to remember, Jesus was the most gracious and loving person that's ever existed, and people got very offended by him because the truth is offensive, right? The truth is offensive, and as one pastor said, because the truth is offensive, it doesn't need your help, right? Do everything you can so that your personality isn't what's offending people, but the truth itself is going to offend people. We have to be ready for that, and we have to be able to endure whatever type of persecution or adversity is going to come our way. Yeah, and this is the good news. If we see the world becoming less and less like Jesus, that's more and more reason for us to become more like him individually. The love of many is going to grow cold because lawlessness will abound, but he has told us these things beforehand. Now, in that warning, there is also the solution. He has told us his word is what ultimately forms our foundation. So if someone were to challenge me on that, say your example, what do you think that I am in regards to gender? I could just respond the way Jesus did and said, well, it doesn't really matter what I think about you, but I do know that when God created you, he did so intentionally and mm. he loves you. But if on the other hand, you aren't content with that, can I ask you why that is? Mm. If we're talking about emotions, if we're talking about logic, and if we're talking about reason, bringing the conversation back to the their need for Jesus, I think it's the most productive. May get a rock thrown at my head, but I'd rather suffer wrong for doing right than to join in the wrong and delay the right. And by the way, this is the positive. Jonathan Edwards once said, the ship of Christianity never sailed so true as when it was washed with the blood of the saints. So what he means by that is whenever there is an edifice that tries to silence truth, it only makes the truth more attractive and appealing to those who see the martyrs. So in other words, when the government starts cracking down and saying, we only want this version of truth, people get wise to that. They're like, we don't like this. We don't like the fact that this one unilateral power is telling me what is true and what is not. I want to seek things out for myself. We have a naturally inquisitive mind that wants to seek out truth. And therefore, some people will toe the party line, absolutely. But a lot of Most. people will become very inquisitive about it. And that's why Christianity spread so far and so fast in the ancient world. Look, read the book of Acts. When did the apostles start scattering outside of Jerusalem? After persecution, right? So once, once persecution ramps up in the book of Acts, you see the message of Christ exponentially spread. So as Christians, Will there be pushback and adversity? Absolutely. To what level? We have no idea. We don't know what it's going to look like. It already looks really bad in most parts of the world. Uh, we're very lucky in the West, <laughs> I'll say. Uh, but 
Will it increase? More than likely. We don't know how much it will, but we need to be faithful and understand the more Satan tries to silence the truth, the more clearly it will be proposed to others. Yeah, don't discourage yourself by looking at how bad the world is. Focus today on how close am I to Jesus, and the rest will sort itself out. A uh, question from Yari, who wants to know what it was meant in Isaiah 48:11, where God says that he will not give his glory to another. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very important passage, Yari, when it comes to understanding Jesus' claims to be God, <laughs> because when we understand, especially in Isaiah 43 through 48, the true statements that are made about the God of the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. that is quoted almost to the point of it being nauseous in the new in order to emphasize this one point when people cross their arms and say well jesus never said i am god we would say yeah because that wouldn't have been understood to his audience but if on the other hand he said the sort of things that could only be truthfully said about god and applied them to himself before Abraham was, I am, I am the first and the last, I am uh, the, you know, Alpha and Omega. Yeah, read Isaiah 42 through 48, and you'll, you'll see. <laughs> yeah, you'll pick up on some familiar yeah. quotes, but very the point clear. we made is this. If Jesus says, I want to be glorified with the Father, and the Old Testament says God doesn't give his glory to another, then one of two things is happening. Either Jesus is blaspheming, he's mm-hmm. claiming something for himself that belongs only to God, or Jesus is rightfully claiming something for himself that belongs to God, i.e., he is God. Right. So if we look at that passage and say, well, God seems kind of selfish and egomaniacal for not giving glory or weight, worth, to anything apart from himself, well, let's ask, first of all, where else would he put it? Right. If there's anywhere else to put the most worthwhile being, worthiness, than the most worthwhile being, then, well, I'd also ask the same question about, say, for instance, might start raining soon, why does water always tend to flow downhill? <laughs> it's naturally going to go that direction. But when Jesus said something interesting, this was his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is John chapter 17 and verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that's another reference, he should give eternal life as to many as you have given him, that's another reference, and in this is eternal life, they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now ready? Verse 4, or 5 rather, And now, O Father, glorify me together, with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. By the way, that word with um, sometimes is translated alongside when he says with you. Um, It's a very specific preposition in the Greek that means on the same level, right? So it's not not saying like we're just going to be like you're on first place and I'm on second place, you know, but we're getting honored together. It's, It's we're on the same tier. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11 makes the same point. Absolutely. So that's something to pay attention to, Yari. When God makes these exclusivistic statements, he's making a basically framework for us to understand the words of Jesus. On the other hand, we're also going to understand why does God only glorify himself? Well, that's the only thing he could do. It's like saying, why doesn't God be immoral? Well, that's like asking, why can't God not be himself? Right. He is the God of truth. He can't not violate his own nature, right. <laughs> meaning he will fulfill his nature. And it would be very unloving as well. So when we think about glory, when we think about weight or splendor, as, as Sean put it, 
the way that we have to understand that word is it goes beyond just like beauty and splendor and majesty and things like that. It's kind of an all-encompassing, really amazing word. In the Greek, it's the Greek word doxa. And essentially what it's saying is it's saying like God, because he is what he is, because he is the all-powerful, the almighty, and the everlasting God, he is the only one that could actually satisfy the soul of man. So Solomon wrote very wisely in Ecclesiastes 3.10, God has placed eternity in our hearts. What he's saying is that the heart of man is only going to be satisfied when it is captured by the supreme beauty of the universe. Anything else that we set our mind to will eventually eat us alive. So David Foster Wallace, who was an atheist and eventually killed himself, but he gave a really interesting commencement speech at a college in which he said, you know, a very interesting reason to worship, which is another word, by the way, to give glory to, uh, a good reason to worship God as opposed to something else is because anything else you choose to worship will eat you alive, right? He also made the point that you don't have a choice. You have to worship something. You have to give glory to something. You have to make your life revolve around something. And he says, so if you worship your looks, it's like you're always going to feel yourself to be ugly. And then when age starts to show, you'll die a thousand deaths before they plant you in the earth. He says, if you worship money and resources, you always feel like you're poor. You always feel like you won't have enough. And eventually when you die, you're going to lose all of it anyway. If you worship power and control over other people, you always feel weak. You always have to dominate and presume upon yourself to be over other people. And he goes on and on from there. But essentially his point is that there is nothing in the cosmos. So he recognizes even as an atheist, there is nothing in the cosmos that is geared, that is glorious enough to satisfy the soul of man. Very similar, again, to the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is writing about all the things he tried to center his life around and how it was all vanity, chasing after the wind. It seemed like it was substantive, but it actually wasn't. If God gave glory to anything else, he'd be glorifying an unworthy object that would eventually make us all dissolute and angry and resentful because it doesn't do what we wanted it to do. Once God has its, his proper place, when he does not give glory to another and we worship him above all things, everything else falls into place, right? Everything else falls into its appropriate order and we're able to enjoy the creation not as a necessity, but as a gift and a blessing. But when God's not in his proper place, eventually everything in the creation will eat us alive because it's not glorious enough to establish our heart. So a uh, very important quote for sure. Thanks for the question. All right. Here is a question from Robert who wants to know about the rebellion of Satan and the fallen angels. Uh, he read in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, that this was to be a future event that John was foreseen. And he also was told that this could be a reference to the original rebellion that happened prior to Genesis. He wants to figure out which is which. Well, Robert, when it comes to understanding basically two separate timelines as far as the events in heaven and the events on this earth, there's three ways that people look at it, that both are taking place and passing along at the same rate, that they're all following their same rules independent of one another, or they're interacting at different events. And there's merit to all three positions. The first position in regards to heaven kind of having its own timeline as opposed to the earth, obviously events taking place in heaven will happen. It's not just some large blur of events that are all happening simultaneously. But if on the 
the other hand, we were to look at it from an earthly perspective. That's why Solomon gives that, again, in Ecclesiastes, kind of mind warp perspective of saying what was already has been, what has been will be, and he's just, okay, <laughs> this is above my pay grade. When we're talking about the events in heaven, it's first important to note Revelation 12 takes place in heaven. There was a place found for them in heaven no longer. That was when they were cast down. We did a study on this two weeks ago on our Wednesday night message in regards to the fall of Satan, and you can listen to it on your own time, but just noting and summarizing the point that we believe uh, Satan's casting out of heaven, and this is what was also referenced in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 and verse 18 as a prophecy, something, as you said, that takes place in the future, that at the halfway point of the tribulation, Satan will be confined to the earth. Not that he doesn't have access to it now, we see that in Job, Mm -hmm. but he will be confined to this earth and not happy about that because he lives to accuse people before the Father. Mm -hmm. So if he can't do that no more, he'll do everything he can on this earth. We saw in Revelation 13 how it'll be done. But the point then being made, what about the other view, that if it's an interaction, that heaven's timeline is happening, the earth is happening in its timeline, and at that point in heaven's timeline, we go to the halfway point, what if only the earth has a particular time, and heaven is, of course, outside of time? We know God is outside of time. But for events to take place in heaven, there also has to be some sort of semblance of events being able to take place one after the other. Otherwise, Satan will have always have been fallen and at the same time never had. So chew on that for a while. The third option is, of course, that they can interact with one another, and I think this has merit too. If you're asking the question, and again, I said all three have merit. I don't pretend to understand heaven. (laughs) I'm not there, so I'll at least give it that much. But the third option, again, not to jump back and forth too much, that's a joke, by the way, uh, is the idea that when Jesus entered into time and space, that from eternity he understood that was his purpose and goal, but also at the same time when he returned to the Father, it wasn't as if there was a continual presence of Jesus in heaven, that there was that separation of time and space between heaven and earth. Now, understand the universe, as we understand it, time, space, and matter are separate. We're introduced by God. What composites heaven as far as science and physics and so forth, we aren't told. But the idea then is, and this is regarding your question, Robert, what was the significance of Satan's fall? Well, obviously it had an impact on our timeline. When Satan fell, he was able to reflect and express that fallen nature during the time of Adam, in the Garden of Eden, during the time of Job, in which he was allowed to deceive and to take away and to torment him for a time period, and of course during the Tribulation. Those are three, and of course interact with Jesus during his incarnation, and of course other events as well, fallen angels being acknowledged in the book of Zechariah and so forth. But if we're asking the question, did Satan fall before Genesis? Or at the halfway point of the tribulation, is Satan still a righteous angel right now in heaven? Well, that's where the three theories come in. Is heaven beyond time, and therefore we couldn't grasp how it works? Maybe. Is heaven on a separate timeline from the earth, and therefore we are discussing something that's happening in their own universe, if you want to refer to it that way? Or are we talking about heaven and earth interacting with one another on a sort of corkscrew double helix timeline where they interact in some points but not all. 
you're going to have to take your pick. But when it comes to what we are told, Jesus spoke in the future tense in Luke 10, 18, referring to Satan falling like lightning, in the context of him sending out his disciples with the authority to cast out evil spirits. In Revelation 12, it speaks of an immediate event that has implications going forward, but hadn't yet until that point in history, which is given to us chronologically, given a... um, pre-trib, and of course, a very plain and a very futurist perspective on the book of Revelation. If you want to know what that means, ask, but the point being made is that. There's three perspectives on time and, sp- and uh, yeah, just time, we'll stick to that, in heaven and on earth as they interact with one another. But the significance of that in regards to when Satan fell depends on which position you take. I'm more in the line with the third position more than any other, because I do note that at specific times and places, Satan's interacted with this timeline, but hasn't been bound by it, and won't be bound by it until that point, and he won't like it. Uh, anything you'd want to clarify? No, All right, good. again, Robert, I know that's a lot, but let me know if that was somewhat clear. And we'll finish with another individual who is very patient, just clarifying the purpose of the question. Uh, Odney, I believe... Um, the question is, why do pastors teach pre-trib rapture when Second Thessalonians 2, 3-4 says, first the falling away, and then the Antichrist is seated in the temple and says that he is God? Well, the answer to that question is the same reason why pastors teach post-trib when Second Chronicles 25-25 says Amaziah lived 15 years after the death of Joash. Now, if you're confused, that's the point. Neither passages had anything to do with the timing of the rapture. Second Thessalonians is focused on, and as he states in the passage, more along the lines of the second coming of Christ, which is not the rapture, and the nature of the Antichrist, which will precede him. There was a false teaching going around that the day of Christ had already come, and he clarifies that. If you want a rapture passage, don't go to 2 Thessalonians 2, go to 1 Thessalonians 4. If, on the other hand, someone were to say, well, this passage says this, okay, but is that what it's talking about? Given the broader context, the emphasis is on the Antichrist, and very few details are given explaining what the falling away is. Some try to emphasize the point that it says, are gathering together to him, that's referencing the rapture. Not necessarily. The word apostolos is rarely used in a positive sense. It means to fall away, not to be drawn to. But if, on the other hand, we're to infer that into the text, that's where confusion takes place. So make sure when we're reading passages, we understand what the broader context is, how it was applied, and the purpose of the book, which he explains not in chapter 2, but in chapter 1. If you want context in regards to the timing of the rapture, we'll be happy to address that separately, but let us know if that is clear. Yeah, let me just read the passage real quick, and I'll pull out some of the stuff you said. So this is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So we see here that there was a heresy, and that heresy was using the apostolic authority in order to propagate itself. So in other words, people were writing letters, and they were signing them Paul, even though it wasn't from Paul, and they're propagating these heresies in the ancient church. So Paul here is establishing a doctrine so that the church wouldn't be open to this kind of deception. But essentially what these heresies were saying is that the coming of Jesus had already happened. Now, there's a couple ways to take it that I'm not going to get into, but essentially that's what's going on at that point. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means for that day, what day? 
what he talked about, uh, the day that Jesus come back. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the ways that different people interpret that is people like myself and Sean, who are pre-tribulation rapture, is as Sean said, we interpret that as the day being the coming of Christ, that Jesus won't come back until after the midpoint of the tribulation period in which the Antichrist reveals himself to be God, like he claims to be God inside of the recreated temple. Yeah, the gathering together is in reference to the final judgment, which Jesus used in the language of Matthew 24 and 25. Not the rapture, but the gathering together from the four winds, the angels for judgment. That's right. So people who are post-trib or even mid-trib, people who would see this, uh, both mid-tribs and post-trib people would take it as, no, 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 the gathering together is the rapture, but that means that the rapture cannot happen until after the man of sin, the Antichrist, reveals himself in the temple. So the mid-tribbers would say, okay, right when he reveals himself, that's when we're raptured. Post-tribbers will say, no, he reveals himself, and then there's three and a half more years of persecution, and then Jesus comes back, and we uh, kind of rule and reign with him. We're kind of a little bit of a U-turn situation. You know, we're kind of caught up in the clouds and then immediately descend down with him. Again, God's allowed to do what he wants. I'm not going to impose and say, that doesn't make sense, therefore God doesn't do it. I am going to, however, say, what does more biblical data justify? And that interpretation, of course, creates more problems than it solves. Let us know if that helps you out. Uh, Final one, this is fun. Um, Individual uh, listening says that uh, they think that you, me, and Pastor Scott are bigots and racists. How would we uh, respond to that? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there's really nothing you can say to an accusation like that. You could ask them why they think we're bigots and racists and what those words mean to them. But ultimately, it's you can't prove a negative, right? So if I... Prove to me you're not. Yeah. <laughs> here's our opportunity to practice rhetoric. I've listened. Yeah. You say that I have a differential or preferential treatment in the negative sense towards people of different views than mine or different skin color, ethnicity than mine. Okay. Yeah. How do you prove that? Yeah. So you have to prove a positive. If you think that someone is a racist or a bigot, they have to prove that to you. So you could just say that to them, Nina. Just be like, okay, why do you think they're a bigot and a racist? What about them is that? And you can ask us specifics. But until then, <laughs> thank you all for listening. God bless you, and we'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.